Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Bosch, the host of the channel today, and I have two guests with me um, who are going to introduce themselves and say their own names so that I don't butcher it. First, we have Hanna. Hanna Bertilsdotter Rosqvist. Thank you. And Anna. Anna Stenning who, along with Nick Chown, are the editors of the new book, Neurodiversity Studies, A New Critical Paradigm, first published in 2020 by Routledge in their Advances in Sociology series. This book should be cross-listed with that channel as well, but education seems very appropriate for the interdisciplinary nature of the book, as well as uh, the scholarship that Anna and Hannah are going to share about today. Um, Anna is the Welcome Research Fellow in the Humanities and Social Sciences in the School of English at the University of Leeds. And Hannah is an Associate Professor in Sociology and a Senior Lecturer in Social Work at Södertörns University in Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you so much for chiming in <laughs> at the exact right moment right there. Anna and Hannah, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, so just to begin, uh, it would be lovely to hear each of you introduce yourselves, share as much of your bio and background as you wish, and maybe how you met or began working together. Um, Hannah, would you like to go first? Mm-hmm. I'm coming, well, I did my PhD on bisexuality, so I'm coming from queer studies, and I wasn't really into autism in some way. I was into normativity, uh, so I was coming into autism studies to a certain nine with the aim to do some kind of critical work on neurotypicality. Uh, but I got stuck up in a way and started to try to learn anything about autism or perhaps autistic subjectivities. And during my first fieldwork, during that 2009 fieldwork, I was peer diagnosed by the people I was kind of researching. <clears throat> so they said to me, I'm autistic myself. And I was kind of a bit, it was a strange suggestion for me then. But I started to identify uh, I think around 2016, but I haven't really been open until this the work with the book because I suddenly felt it was a political thing to be more open. But also I realized like the challenge is to be open when you are a senior researcher and also those expectations of what it is to be an autistic researcher is still kind of very fragile as it's still very a very new position. So I think the book is also part of kind of formulating a new autistic autism researcher self. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, Anna, would you like to share a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, so I'm working on a three-year research project, um, and the project is about life writing by um, identified autistic authors, either self-identifying or diagnosed. And I'm interested in what these accounts tell us about autism isn't known, kind of in wide strength in sort of more broad cultural narratives about autism and also how writing a book can help to create agency for the author um, around their own understanding of their lives. And I myself um, came to this stud field from a background in environmental literary criticism, which was what my PhD was on. Um, so obviously my background is quite different to Hannah's. I was um, I first came across a particular book, which was called Fingers in the Sparkle Jar by Chris Packham, and it was, um, it was he's a well-known uh, British nature broadcaster, and it was the first time that he kind of publicly talked about what his autism or um, neural neuroatypical um, life meant um, to him, and particularly how it allowed for 
particular kinds of joy and pleasure in the natural world. Um, so I was thinking about that that led to this project. And then I joined a community of online openly autistic um, researchers, which I wasn't expecting to find. And that's where I met Hannah and Nick. Um, and say that it was Hannah and Nick who first came up with the idea for the book. Um, and I was sort of invited on as a kind of co-traveller. So I'm very grateful to them for that. Um, and we were working on neurodiversity as a much broader idea than what was being done in critical autism studies. And we were working within a kind of broadly social model of um, autism and um, other other kinds of disability. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that background. Um, I want to pick up on something that uh, you just mentioned, Anna. We're going to sort of start off this interview by trying to um, explain some of the key terms and concepts for people um, listening in before we get into an overview of the book's content. And you just mentioned uh, critical autism studies. And there are some moments in the book where you also refer to um, critical autism studies sort of being the, the central or centered area of focus um, right now in the UK. Um, I was wondering if you could just say a, a few words about the difference between, and we haven't even defined neurodiversity, so maybe <laughs> we will in, in doing this, but yeah, critical autism studies, neurodiversity studies, how can we maybe compare and contrast? Um, and I guess I'll start out with Anna since you mentioned it in your last thing, and then I'll shift to Hannah. Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm newer to the um, to this field than Hannah, so I'll, I'll have a go. And okay. <laughs> I mean, critical autism studies is something that has come out of probably mainly sort of UK and European um, scholars who are working within sociology um, and looking at finding a kind of non-pathologizing um, or more kind of encompassing ideas about what autism might mean, particularly within the course of an individual life. So um, the critical would refer to the kind of um, engaging with um, existing medical accounts and seeing how they would um, maybe be unable to account for certain experiences or actually cause potential harms for people who are labelled as such. Um, it is very much focused on autism because I think there's perhaps been more of an autism, it comes out of neuro, um, autistic self-advocacy and uh, kind of social um, and activist movements that haven't necessarily occurred yet um, so much for other neurodivergent identities certainly not um within the uk um so i think um that is starting to happen now here i think there are definitely more there's more recognition for the need to theorize what other kind of um neuro minority experiences might be like um building on the fact that some of us are able to be out and kind of um open in a way that isn't necessarily possible for other kinds of uh new minority so I think that's where it comes from is there anything else I missed, Hannah? I think that, that because I was coming into this field in 2009, I didn't know much about it then, but now I kind of start to realize that it's a, it has a critical agenda. <clears throat> but most researchers within that field is still neurotypical. And it makes difference when you do research as a neurotypical researcher is kind of inviting autistic people to be on board in the research process. But what is about neurodiverse studies is mostly that it's autistic-led or neurodivergent-led. That makes it, if I compare to the queer studies, it's a similar step. But first you have sexology, which was kind of done by the heterosexual sexologists people. who was looking at non-heterosexuals. And now it's a similar turn in autism studies. And maybe the first steps on critical autism studies was do very important stuff. So we really wanted to kind of do something not pathologizing, but it was still within the frame of thinking about autism as the other, the cognitive other. So what we are trying to do is to marginalize the center, and that is to kind of put in the kind of autistic view on world to be the center, not the non-autistic view on world, or the non-divergent view on world. Yeah, yeah. So that's, thank you so much for connecting that also to the history of, uh, of queer theory and, um, and uh, the way that um, critical research 
on autism has been led by neurotypical people is also like a very important thing to mention. And I think to begin to orient listeners. Um, so I guess to let's, let's pick up on, on that. Um, we've already referenced neurotypicality, which will often be abbreviated in conversation as NT. Um, and we've also mentioned autism and we've also mentioned neurodiversity. Um, so let's, let's introduce that central term, um, neurodiversity. Again, the book is called Neurodiversity Studies, a New Critical Paradigm. Um, so in the, um, in the introduction, right, you all write, uh, quote, the concept of neurodiversity usually refers to perceived variations seen in cognitive, effectual, and sensory functioning differing from the majority of the general population or in quotes, the predominant neurotype, more usually known as the neurotypical population. The ontological assumption of neurodiversity is often contrasted with the ideological position that there is a recurrent normal cognitive, affective, and sensory type, otherwise known as the normal human being or the quote, normate. <laughs> yes, a term I had never heard before. Um, the Garland Thompson 1997 is quoted right there. Um, and I think this is really important, uh, again, or the normate as defined in the first half of the 20th century by psychologists who were living in the shadow of eugenics. So there's a lot in there. Um, and I'm about to suggest that in order to center the concept of neurodiversity on this show, and, and Hannah, you alluded to that, I am going to suggest that paradoxically, perhaps, um, we begin by contouring the other side of that neurotypicality, because um, despite its roots in a discredited yet enduring field like eugenics, um, this remains indiscernible, taken for granted in so many discourses. Um, can you talk a little bit about the 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 I think this is another issue, too, in inclusive education, right, um, in, in issues related to disability and ability. We have these binaries, and often the typical, right, or the more mainstream or centered privileged identity is actually way less defined than uh, the, the alternate or what it's put in contrast to. I know it's incredibly challenging to define terms, and I'm not trying to get overly into semantics, but I would just be really interested in any thoughts you have or talking about, about whether it's useful to even begin actually by turning the gaze back on the neurotypical and talking about what that even means, or if we're just recentering neurotypicality by doing that. I think it's, it's similar to the Garland Thompson project. So she's trying to, at least from the disability studies field perspective, to think about non-disabled body and what, do, what, is, that, what is that doing? Uh, so I think it's a similar project to kind of try to, from the perspective of the neurodivergent person to look at the non-neurodivergent, non kind of. So that's, for me, it's easy to, to use normate because it's it's an, kind of not universal, but it's kind of normate is always constructed in relationship to the borders and the others. And it's also situated in a specific kind of context. So what is a normate, a cognitive normate in Sweden is not the same thing as in Britain or in USA. Right. It's always shifting. Yeah. Okay. So this normate term is a term from disability studies and it is helpful for us yeah. because it helps us understand. Wonderful. Okay. Sorry. Um, Anna, would you like to add anything? Say, so, you know, if, if you wanted a very kind of basic uh, definition to you know, guide the readers into, into the more complex, I don't sort of iterations of the idea. I think you could say that uh, neurotypical, which is often abbreviated NT, is means having a style of neurocognitive functioning that falls within what society determines is normal. Um, so it would be obviously again it would be relative to the society, uh, the time frame because we think particular forms of neurodivergence have emerged within the twentieth century. They wouldn't have meant, made any sense before then. Um, you know, particularly diagnostic categories, um, but also. Um, even the idea of that there was a, a desirable normality wouldn't necessarily have been seen in the same way. Um, so, 
hopefully that helps a little bit. That's right. No, yeah, that's a huge help. And I, I also think that just my first reaction is it's um, it's so helpful to have uh, terms that throw the context, the temporal context, the social context, the geopolitical context into relief so that we can see it because so often times, um, so often these things are just assumed and absorbed in into normate perspectives and um, narratives. And there are pieces that we know really exist and can be called out and, and recognized if we just, I think, get some of the right terms and perspectives um, under our belts. So, okay. So th- that was also super helpful for just, yeah, putting that, um, those definitions sort of right up front, Anna. Thank you. Um, I want to go back for a second to, again, this idea of um, centering the margins, right, or decentering what is normally centered, which, um, as you mentioned in the book, owes a, a great debt to Black feminism, queer theory, um, and you begin in the introduction by immediately establishing um, that quote the myths of the ideal rational person and the supposed universality of propositions about human nature have been oppressive to those who are not European, white, male, middle class, Christian, able-bodied, thin, and heterosexual. And that's thanks to a, a seminal um, article by Ellsworth in 1989, um, where she talks about the critical pedagogies. Uh, challenges or limitations in actually decentering those those privileged identities right so also just right off the bat that's an important assumption for people to understand too and if if you're not with us on that you let's talk later or something you need to do back in later because this is an incredibly important starting point and then you all extend this assumption to the topic of neurodiversity by saying the construct of the neurotypical as an ideal ethical subject may be added to the list of assumptions about ideal rationality, since rationality is often conceived in terms of cognitive, social, and sensory behaviors in psychology. Through, de- through describing behaviors from the outside and through medical, economic, and social interventions, subjects are being produced as deviants to assumed standards of intellectual, perceptual, and emotional processing. They become subjects to both internal and external oppression. So I thought here I would also just bring in the the word critical from uh, the title, right? Um, again, uh, a new critical paradigm, neurodiversity studies. Can you talk a bit about the choice of that that particular word, critical, uh, and maybe even paradigm? <laughs> yeah, I think it's this, back to the critical autist studies. So there was a long okay. discussion scene. I think since about 2016, mostly in the British context, about what is critical in critical autism studies, that they felt, at least some, some, some autistic researchers felt that they were still left behind, left out. Uh, so that is one thing that is really critical in terms of critical towards and neurotypical and what is not kind of some kind of neurodivergent uh, experience. What, what, not really the, the subjectivity, but the power structure. And yes. the things which is kind of taken for granted because you always think about the, the human as a cognitive normate, actually, which mm-hmm. where everybody else is kind of less human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think also when it comes to critical, it's also about we can't just say that we are critical. We also have to form new tools for doing critical work. And I think a lot of what, what is being done in the book is to try to, to check or to try to develop, to try on different kinds of research tools, which hasn't been used before. Okay, we, we, we talk about action research, <clears throat> participatory research within critical autism studies, but really to do it in a kind of, from the neurodivergent perspective or for, to, to <clears throat> in a way which kind of support neurodivergent people to participate and to do research themselves. If we are going to do that, we need new methods. Yeah. That's also part of <clears throat> the critical. Amazing. Excellent. Thank you. Anna, do you have anything to add on that? Well, yeah, I mean, perhaps to also address the idea of the paradigm that we're looking at. I mean, obviously, the existing paradigm for autism research is the medical model um, based on the idea of disorders, particular kinds of disorder that are uh, replicable among different subjects, according to these kind of 
narrow, perhaps, or um, certainly universalizable models. So that was the medical paradigm is is one. And then I guess critical autism studies was moving to um, to looking at the idea that there might be um, particular differences in how we experience the world, um, which were also, again, perhaps equally um, defined or they might be established in advance, whereas neurodiversity would, would seek to say that, well, um, how these things, how could these things ever be known within the kind of existing ways of, of producing knowledge, where we don't um, we don't seek ideas and kind of interactions with um, neurodivergent people? Um, we're just sort of imposing our pre-existing ideas on them, but also as a paradigm, it's more of a kind of ontological position rather than an activist or necessarily a particular ethical um, stance. We're looking at it as a way of producing knowledge um with with a kind of more um say humanizing uh, agenda the one that just seeks to find um sort of isolated parts of disordered brains um that can be separated from the context that we've been talking about the lives that people live the challenges they find um from living in a society that is um, increasingly kind of homogenous perhaps for, for different kinds of people Thank you so much for 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 that uh, expanded um, explanation and for and for bringing up. I think we've alluded to it maybe a couple of times now, but the medical model of disability, right, um, which stands in contrast to the social model of disability, um, which is also being uh, challenged, expanded on in new ways, thanks to some of the contribute contributions in your book. I know that in Latin America, there's also a framework, um, functional diversity that's, that's gaining traction. And I'm not sure, uh, what else I'm sure there are many more things out there that I'm not aware of. Um, but yeah, just to sort of briefly name those and people can, can look those up if, if the, those are terms that, and, and paradigms that they're not familiar with. Um, I, I want to also just take the opportunity to touch on uh, an important piece where I, I also think your book um, really resonates with a lot of uh, conversations that are becoming more um, popular, accessible in, in, in at least discourses that I'm able to plug into here in the U.S. This is the idea of diversity uh, not being a trait that is possessed by an individual, but rather a group. Um, and so, you know, uh, you, you specifically mentioned at one point also in the, in the intro, um, that, uh, Nick Walker says, quote, diversity is a trait possessed by a group, not an individual. And to talk of individuals as neurodiverse is to situate them as other to the norm, as well as being, in our opinion, nonsensical. Again, I'm quoting from you. Um, so just to be clear also with listeners, yeah, like any one individual is going to be part of a group that may be described as neurotypical or a group that may be described as neurodivergent or neurodiverse. Right. Is there a difference between those last two terms? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> and that is also part of why it's it's so happened so fast right now. As a, as a since two or three years, there's a lot of thing has been changed. That when we were starting to do this book, there was in some places it was completely right to talk about neurodiverse or neurodiverse people. But now it's more feel if if it, it is better to talk about neurodivergent people that everybody is actually neurodiverse because everybody has different kinds of brains. But that's also a problem that when we talk about neurodiversity, people try to think about, or some people uh, try to, to translate that into atypicality. Mm. So that's the problem now with the term that neurodiversity is not about atypicality. Neurodiversity is about the human brain is different. All, all kinds of brains are different. Mm. But then we have a power situation, power structure situation where there are some people who is defined as other. And they, those are the neurodivergent people, which is not only about autistic people, but also about the rest of it, the groups who has been excluded from the kind of cognitive norms in different kinds of ways, which could be ADHD, dementia, as a, a lot of kinds of groups. Got you. That's super helpful. Yes, I imagine also that with the way things 
change and take off and then writing a book it takes so much they run at different uh speeds <laughs> um the publishing world and um maybe that popular culture okay so that's super helpful anna do you have any thoughts on on this distinction neurodivergent neurodiverse um i mean i guess um maybe this just to make it even more confusing perhaps is- <laughs> If a group of people share a same kind of um, identity, you could say that they form a neuro minority. Right. Um, just to kind of um, thank you. Maybe help to bring a little bit of uh, order on that idea. Thank you so much. And I, I think you know, there's another another term that you all use at one point. I think it's in the conclusion, but you talk about um, cognitive decolonization or coloni- cognitive decolonialization and. Um, I think that's part of what's happening here, right? Like, <laughs> so we're we're doing it because um, I mean, I don't. Would you, either of you like to say a bit more about what that means, rather than me uh, try to do it? I can try. Uh, it's it's a matter of being also um, I don't know humbled that you kind of know that a lot of research questions was being kind of uh, asked to autistic people and their families has repeating certain paradigm which are kind of colonizers' gaze. It's, it's an outsider's gaze on certain experiences. And in order to kind of get, get out of that gaze, you need to look back and you need to decolonize that gaze. Like the, the kind of white British person who's coming into Africa and do some things with them. It needs to get out from the, the mindset. Right. A- There's so many levels and, and, and uh, structures that we're, we're- enmeshed in that are um, part of that legacy. And and just to, to segue, I want to talk now, just, you know, go quickly through the book's content. But um, I do want to just mention, like, that there is a kind of urgency, I think, around um, this book. Um, decolonization, I, I think, is always a, a, a pretty urgent matter. Um, but I also, uh, you know, just really appreciate the way that you all write, actually, um, that new theoretical perspectives in neurodiversity studies are needed, quote, before the urge to render humanity free of deficits becomes an imperative to reduce society of the burden of disability, in this case, in the form of neurodiversity, before its full implications are understood. Um, I just thought that was an incredibly powerful uh, sentence, and I'm sure there are some things in there you may want to unpack, like the burden of disability, uh, I'm sure is, you know, a term that you're uh, using to describe the way society approaches disability, right? And as we see things like technology, uh, um, adaptive technology, implant technology advancing at really rapid paces, I'm just super curious um, to hear any kind of uh, thoughts you have on on yeah on the urgency behind um, getting this work out in, into into the public and the urgency behind the need for neurodiversity studies and theorizing. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to have a go. I mean, please feel free to to add to this, Hannah. I mean, I think um, Nick talks a bit in his chapter for the book. Nick Chown is about the way that the idea that autism is either something that needs to be cured or eradicated has become such a kind of, it's some um, unquestioned assumption um, in all kind of interactions with autism um, that it doesn't seem to, it's never questioned. Um, and I think even if, if, you know, medical research is conducted with the aim of producing good outcomes, it, it doesn't have any room for the idea that, that it affects real people. Um, but for, for instance, at the, in the during the covid um pandemic in the uk we know that um autistic people were much less likely to be um you know resuscitated um if they were in hospital for um um you know for the pneumonia resulting from covid there's a wow. kind of tacit assumption that it would be much better to try and give the equipment to someone who wasn't labeled autistic or or otherwise um disabled it's a kind of it seems to be the kind of narrative story that is unquestioned um and it's so problematic in so many different areas i mean that's just one kind of small area i don't, virginia bovell talks about the um ethics of research into prenatal testing um particularly again with reference to autism um and how 
um, the, the different kind of the questions that have been asked don't really have any kind of um, consideration for the kind of deeper ethical issues that emerge. Um, and that chapter is just really well argued and um, articulated about the kind of deeper ethical debates that need to emerge about what, what it means to be human, um, what it means to be part of a society, um, which um, I think, given that the same stories have been told over and over again, right, which is, I think, something we, we say in the introduction, how can anything change? Um, we need a kind of radical uh, new paradigm to produce new kinds of knowledge. Thank you. And thank you so much for connecting that this issue to the pandemic that we're still that we're living through that we're still in. Hannah, do you have anything to add on this? No, I think it's, it's uh, also about the general issue. Like in Sweden, we put our small children into kindergarten, which is kind, kind of strict uh, teaching into certain social behaviors, which then uh, led into the elementary school and further on into universities. So there's a whole process of, of forming some certain subjects. Uh, and I think it's Mitzi Vats in, in the book who's talking about the kind of producing of certain kind of workers since the kind of the, the modern or the Western modern time. Uh, so it's not just about autism. It's about the whole world's capacity to have kind of different kinds of humans and the difficulties with, with people who can't put, be put into that kind of restrict teaching or strict education into certain subjects. Yeah, I mean, just as someone in education, I've I've hit that we've just touched on, you know, very common issues in the charterization of education, for example, or uh, reproductive and birthing people's relationship to child rearing and schooling. I mean, there's so many connections in uh, in the book to um, just it's incredibly uh, intersectional in terms of the, the other issues that are relevant that it raises. So, um, yeah, let's just go through uh, the, the, the content now, you know, quickly, I know that um, we're probably coming up on the end of the time. Um, but I, I wanted to just sort of go through, there's five main sections that you chose to organize the book into. The first is, um, curing neurodivergence slash eugenics. Um, we've just t- discussed this a bit. Um, this section touches on uh, cognitive othering to produce autism as a category and neurodivergent subjects, the psychological measures of normalcy that were produced after World War One regarding citizenry and productivity, um, real interesting intersection there, I thought, also with like economics neurotypical language games and the ethics of cure and prevention. So that's a lot of stuff. Um, any way to sort of summarize or, or raise up even maybe one of your favorite points or um, something from that section of the book? Um, I guess I'll start with Johanna since you are smiling at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think actually it is, I mean, it's about chapter. It's, it's about to understand that the autism thing is not about autism. It's about productions of childhood and what kind of subjects we want to kind of become, a certain kind of citizenship, which is very closely connected to a certain idea of uh, what, what is what is a good uh, citizen in, in a particular kind of world. Uh, right. So I think, for me at least, or I, I know there is a critical psychological work. Who's, so so Mitzvalsi is not the only one who's kind of into this and, and how to kind of um, to understand what is... What is, um, I wouldn't say, side, um, uh, if you are producing a certain childhood and what is the kind of, um, what, what, what pathological childhoods is being produced in the same time as you're kind of producing, the, what is it, ideal or some kind of, yeah, that kind of childhood. Mm. Mm. Okay, and so then we can just shift to the second um, section, which is about uh, also, you know, you just mentioned this, Hannah, supporting the shift from neurodivergent pathologizing to neurodivergent well-being, um, which is a theme that organizes the second cluster of chapters and is a theme that I think has become also just very, the well-being, um, 
uh, industry <laughs> is increasingly prominent. So it just, yeah, like I can just imagine that there's so much interesting stuff to um, say in this section. And maybe on, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you for any thoughts um, or summaries on this piece. Um, but can, just, just, go ahead. Yeah, please. I mean, yeah, um, obviously, I would encourage listeners to read the book and uh, yes. to engage with it. But I think an, an important point about the reason we structured the book this way is that yeah. we weren't like, trying to say often there's a, a stereotype that neurodiversity or those that are, are kind of interested in neurodiversity reject the idea that there might be any difficulties that are experienced by um, those who've been labeled as autistic or ADHD. Um, when obviously this isn't the case, um, well, um, certainly in the case of there are often, you know, people people look at these things differently within the same idea that there is a natural underlying uh, kind of cognitive difference amongst people. And this chapter kind of goes into more into where where difficulties may emerge, which are more to do with being a kind of um, neural atypical in a in a normate normative highly regulated society, um, and what kinds of um, why the pathology perspective doesn't allow room for the kind of becoming, uh, collective becoming and uh, understanding of different forms of life that we gain through understanding neurodiversity. So obviously well-being can be a very kind of marketized idea. I think the chapter does go way beyond that. I hope yes. it does. It was, it was meant to be a kind of more, in a sense, that it's an accessible term that doesn't yeah. carry with it too much of a kind of, um, I mean, the, that particular section does talk about kind of ethical ideas about what a good life is as well. But we kind of we wanted to think of get, encourage the reader to just sort of approach it with their own, um, you know, without any kind of pre uh, any prior ideas about what neurodivergent well-being might be, <laughs> um, which obviously will depend on particular context. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for thank you so much for that. I'm sorry for the interruption on my end. I don't know if you heard that, but um okay, great. Um do you have anything that you would like to add to that piece, Hana? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to say that this is quite hard actually to try to kind of actually try to sum the chapters it's because very hard. <laughs> Because there's so there's it's incredibly I mean, it's a groundbreaking book. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly intersectional, meaning it, it really intersects with so many other topics, disciplines, etc. So, yes, thank you for uh, recognizing that and, and still trying to do it with me because I, I really wanted the chance to kind of go through it. And, and yes, the lis listeners will hopefully also be readers um, because there's just so much in here. Um, Getting into the third section, yeah, and this is where also, Anna, you have uh, a chapter that, that you authored, Understanding Empathy Through a Study of Autistic Life Writing on the Importance of Neurodivergent Morality. Um, this, this section is on cross-neurotype communication, um, which uh, I really appreciated and uh, which we're doing right now, hopefully. <laughs> um, so... Here we get into cross-cultural communication principles applied to cross-neurotype communication, and also some. Uh, there was a there was a, a, a chapter in this section that started out with kind of like a poem, and uh, um, I, I thought it was just a really nice example of like a, almost a living example of what that looks like and means. We also have in here the ethical implications of neurodiversity and neurodivergent morality. And, um, and, and other, uh, another chapter two on, um, collective knowledge production, I guess is how I would summarize it. Um, any way to sort of orient us to highlights here, and maybe I'll throw this back to Anna since you have, um, a chapter in here and it's maybe uh, easy for you to just sort of say a couple words about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd also mention Hannah's a co-author co of one of the yes. chapters. She did a lot of work in this book. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. It's easy to, I mean, that was, what's really interesting is that, yeah, that, that chapter, it, as it's, it is an example of working across, you know, multiple years. <sighs> um, but I think for me, obviously my work is about, English language um, and how, in fact, understanding neurodiversity could help us see communication differently, as in, um, I guess that's 
really what all of my work's about. What what might be overlooked when we look at a text if we don't think about different kinds of communicator and the, the the way that their stories might be hidden by dominant narratives um, about what it is to be human. So I, th- I talk particularly about in that chapter about the kind of the rise in quite prominent outspoken autistic commentators on different aspects of society, including Greta Thunberg um, and Chris Backham in the UK, who are who have been attacked because of their neurodivergence. Um, and actually looking at how that kind of fits with some of the psychological constructions of autism, have, who, which have kind of seen autistic um, behaviour as kind of either deficient in any kind of morality or as being directly resulting from the neurology rather than as a kind of complex engagement with the world, um, which I think is particularly hard for uh, Greta Thunberg because obviously there's the intersectionality of that with the fact that she's a young woman. Um, right. You can see how these different social markers of identity are used to silence people. Um, but actually what most people or what a lot of people recognise is that people whose life experience selves are kind of quite different as a result of being a typical um, outside of dominant cultural uh, ideas, they have a lot to bring to the kind of the key issues that face that we all face. Um, and it's not about having neurodivergence as a superpower. It's about valuing different kinds of knowledge and experience. Um, so I was quite pleased to be able that I was able to talk about. Hopefully, the chap that particular chapter has an appeal to people who don't necessarily have knowledge of the kind of history of critical autism studies. It focuses more on quite well-known individual people. Thank you so much for calling that out. And and yeah, I, I'm actually going to now, to just get a, into the fourth section, I'm going to kick it back to... Um, to Hana because this section, well, of course, as you mentioned, Anna, um, there's, you know, you, you all, you both, and along with Nick as editors of the book, were, were, are in everything. And I know also that, Hana, you've written about um, uh, autistic workspaces, and this fourth section is about neurodiversity at work. I, I'm just also curious, um, how that section has held up or contributed, if at all, to understanding the massive shift in how people have been working within academic institutions, for example, during COVID-19. But anything that you really want to say, I mean, there's, again, there's a there's three chapters within this section, neurodiversity at work. So um, it just seems also like it came out at the right time because there's been a, such a sea change in how we do things. So any thoughts on that, um, Hannah? I think uh, it's two things. First, at, at in the, actually in the first chapter in that section uh, where I think Nicola Martin is trying to start out some yeah. way to formulate a neurotypical research position, which is actually, actually kind of ethical in relationship to the critical autism researchers, which has been informed and wanted to do ethical work, but perhaps haven't been self-critical enough. And she's really trying to kind of deconstruct a certain position as a researcher, what to do as a neurotypical researcher in some kind of neurodiversity studies, because that position is quite um, um, ambivalent, uh, what, what is actually the place for neurotypical researchers. Um, and I think actually that chapter is a beginning of something. So she's kind of starting to map out possibilities for a neurotypical research in neurodiverse studies. Uh, and in the chapter 10, where I, together with a group of autistic researchers and activists in Sweden and also a German researcher, we are trying to kind of think what is what does it mean to work as an autistic research group mm-hmm. in autistic writing space. And we really develop the, the feeling that it's not just to say that, okay, I can, I can write a narrative about myself. Because if you keep on working with your your story, your narrative in your kind of own space, you will keep on actually repeating the big stories, which is repeatedly st- said. Mm. Mm. So we had to make a new space mm. in order to be able to narrate new stories. And I think that was also the same thing with my other chapter, the sensory strangers, that it's all about the space, that mm-hmm. we have to re- revise, re- redefine the research space in order to make new stories basically. Mm. 
Thank you. That's that's so important also as a segue, I think, to I'm going to just sort of lump in the fifth part with the sixth part, because both of these have to do with uh, the, the future and the, and the news stories and sort of like, um, what's, what's coming, um, hopefully as a result of, of, uh, this kind of work. So the fifth, the fifth section is challenging brain bound cognition. Um, and you all write that hopefully this marks the way forward for a future neurodiversity studies that's able to loop between the different domains in which the term is used, rather than contribute to the othering that has produced the marginalization of neurodivergent people. Just, is there any way to give us a little teaser on, I'm sure for a lot of folks, challenging brain-bound cognition is like, makes their, makes their brain-bound cognition (laughs) explode. So yeah, is there any way to give us a a quick teaser on that and, um, and, uh, and, and, and how you see this work um, maybe, uh, occurring into the present and the future since this book came out in 2020. I mean, it's only a year ago, but, um, uh, since this has to do with future directions and whatnot, um, yeah. Any, any Just, comments um, on that? Yeah. Kind of brief comments. Um, I, I do also think it's, um, it is worth saying that the, 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 the situation of the lockdown has maybe produced new opportunities for collaborations and uh, writing partnerships to happen, particularly for neurodivergent people who struggle with traveling to different places and for whom there are particular kind of constraints on the resources to allocate to academic knowledge production. Obviously, one of the kind of possibly few good things that come out of this situation. Um, I do think one of the things that really surprises me about research on neurodivergent conditions within the kind of medical model approach is that um, the newer ideas from cognitive science, um, such as the idea of uh, inactive um, study of the mind, which sees that what we think of as our mental life is produced through interaction with particular environments and other people. It's not uh, located within a kind of a Cartesian uh, mind outside in a transcendental realm. And yet still, with particularly within a uh, construction of all of conditions that are included in diagnostic manuals, including developmental disorders, the conditions are uh, they're described without any reference to the context or the environment, um, and which obviously within the neurodiversity paradigm is what produce some of the difficulties that are described as autism or um, ADHD. So it's why is it that we still have a very kind of behaviorist model of autism when there are different ways of doing even psychological science within a kind of neoliberal paradigm. Um, it just seems so bizarre. <laughs> so that, I think we all share, an, I, I think Nick especially is interested in those, the, the cognitive science, what it might tell us about uh, neurodiversity. Um, yeah, I think also intersectionality, you've mentioned a lot. I think we need to think through a lot more um, about how particular social identities might combine to make particular challenges for neurodivergent people in particular, or um, challenges in receiving the right support or, um, yeah, I think that, and, and, and then the need to go beyond the kind of autistic dominated research that this book is still, um, this book is still predominantly autistic led. Um, a truly kind of neurodivergence based would have much greater representation. We wouldn't also all be white. Uh, we would not be, um, you know, uh, within the um, kind of the non the minority world. Um, mm-hmm. So it's yeah. There's a it's just a very small beginning, I think, that raises some very big issues that we hope other people will add to and think through. Um, yeah, Hannah. Oh, I have to get to tie it, but I think, at least for me, it's it's, it's very much about uh, saying aloud that we can't go on with the anti-business as user. And like the queer studies, it's, it can't go on because it's you can't go further with the research which got keep, keep repeating certain questions and getting the same answers again because it doesn't work. So we are trying to map out actually new ways further, both for social work and for, for education, that we need to, to, to develop new strategies for teaching 
and new studies for support, which actually is based more on, on neurodivergent experiences, not non-neurodivergent expectations of neurodivergent experiences. So that kind of idea is quite basic. Well, I um, think that this book goes a long way in towards accomplishing that, and I appreciate so much um, your closing comments on 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 the the representation in here as well, um, Anna. I think, as we've alluded to, like uh, within neurodiversity and or or neurodivergent groups, there's much more than just autism, right? Um, and well, as we said in the beginning, every, everyone is neurodiverse. Um, so uh, there's a lot of, um, I think, room to grow. And I thank you both so much for putting this out there as a way for people to get started and for people like me to access these concepts. Um, I guess just to wrap up, would you like to share uh, briefly what whatever you're working on these days or, or um what is holding your interest uh, at this moment in time? <laughs> I'll start out with Hannah. <laughs> Actually, me and Hannah together with is it three other people who's working together on narrative agency. As I'm not the only one, but we kind of as a, it's it's not my pro, my my concept or Anna's concept, but kind of Anna brought it into this group this this concept. <clears throat> so I think that is quite important to think about really what does it mean to have a narrative agency if you don't have it what what can you actually say <clears throat> and that also connected to another project of mine which is about cross uh, cross neurotype translation so building further from the communication thing it's also about translation so in order to be able to translate you have to be aware of and recognize the different narrative agencies and abilities to narrate yourself but then you also start to need you you, see, you, lo- you need to start learning translate between the, the cultures. Fascinating, thank you, um, Anna. Yeah, um, as well as the project, yeah, Hannah mentioned. I'm also working on a panel, um, a group panel presentation for the Hasley Conference, which is a study of literature and the environment, which is really exciting for me because it means I get to bring together my interest in kind of disability studies and environmental writing, but. Um, really exciting. I'm going to be working with a, a very kind of diverse representation of um, autistic people who are interested in the environment um, and kind of working with the environment to make poetry, uh, life writing, um, and also um, find up visual arts. So that's something that's, um, that's coming up soon. So I'm really looking forward to that. Fascinating projects. I'm sure that um, we'll be uh, keeping in touch or I'll, I'll at least be following you and seeing what y'all are up to. So thank you again so much for talking with us today and being so generous with your time. Um, I just really appreciate it and, and really enjoyed it. So thanks for being here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much.